The Car Dealer Podcast is sponsored by SalesLink from Jato, a market insight tool that's purpose-built for franchise car dealers. Get analysis on thousands of new vehicle transactions every month from all the major brands. See model mix and trim data for the brands you sell, as well as competitor data, all in the free web-based platform. It lets you track vehicle option uptake, colour preferences, and gives detailed data on pricing and discounts. Sign up for your free SalesLink account today. Visit jato.com slash saleslink to start unlocking your market insights. Welcome back to the Car Dealer Podcast, where we pick our favourite stories of the week and ask an industry guest to choose which were the best. I'm John Ray, and joining me once again this week is the man that talks to ChatGPT like a magic eight ball. It's James Maggot. James, have you asked uh, ChatGPT what to have for breakfast? No, John, I haven't. No, but I have been talking to ChatGPT a lot this week, and it's been a lot friendlier than you are currently being to me right now. <laughs> That's because, James, and you will know this from anyone watching the videos, is ChatGPT has a very short memory. <laughs> it certainly has. It certainly has, and thankfully so. Thankfully so. Um, how's your week been, John? Uh, it's been fine. I've been in your house for five days, but apart from that, it's um, it's been good. Yeah. You're trapped in my house still today, yes, but that's yeah. because we're preparing for Cardio Live, aren't we? So, um, that's taking place next week, March the 7th. Very, very much looking forward to that day. Um, very excited about some of the uh, things we've got going on, but I'm going to save that for the podcast. But can we just talk about some car sales? Of course. I made two of those on Saturday, very shocked, sold both the uh, Volkswagen Tiguan and the Fiat 500 that I had in one day, um, very, very pleased. Um, it was interesting because the, the first one was the, uh, the Tiguan, the um, family came um, over from Portsmouth um, to have a look at the car and they uh, they came over in a Ford Focus um, ST estate that the uh, husband had obviously bought, um, suggesting that it was a practical car, but the wife wasn't quite so convinced. Uh, so they're trading it in for a much more uh, practical uh, Volkswagen Tiguan. They were a lovely family, um, enjoyed that one. I'm handing that car over tomorrow. And then I had a couple come and have a look at the Fiat 500 in the evening. And it was the first customers that I had where I really sensed the kind of trepidation that people have when they meet a used car dealer they mm. were completely and utterly on their guard for probably the first 10 to 15 minutes you could just see that the way that they were talking to me and the questions that they were asking just felt it felt like they'd had bad experiences in the past um and it felt like a bit of a challenge for me because i had to win them over and um, i spent quite a bit of time with them showing them around the car giving them a test drive and actually by the end of it we got on really well but it, you could just see why some people um, are a little bit nervous um, when they go to see a, see a car dealer. Um, and it gave me a bit of a challenge to try and win them over and actually convince them that I wasn't a baddie and I was actually going to look after them. And they bought the car. They bought the car. So, t yeah, very successful Saturday. Very pleased with that. Yeah, the other possible explanation for that is it's the first time they've been to Gosport. Which they live. Like how them. dare you? How dare you, John? They lived in Gosport, uh, so they knew oh, okay. the area very well. Um, and then, yeah, then I spend the rest of the week trying to buy some other cars. Um, and I've been successful with one. I've bought a Kia Picanto, yes. twenty twelve plate, which, as I recall, has more outstanding on the finance than you paid for it. 
it certainly does. Uh, <laughs> I paid £2,700 for this car, and the guy owes £3,500 on it. So I've got to now work out how to do it. Actually, I've just got off the phone to close um, Motor Finance, which is who's with the finance, um, who he's got the finance with, um, and worked out how to pay it off. And it's all a little bit complicated. Mm. So, um, yeah, a situation the, where the buy, the seller pays you £800 to take his car away. They suggested that we both pay them at the same time. It takes them one to two days to prove that it's been cleared. So I've got to get my head around that. But anyway, I'm sure it's something that if real car dealers, you know, professional ones, unlike me, do every single day. Uh, and I just a bit of a learning curve for me. Absolutely. I do have to ask the, the saga of the yellow Fabian. Oh, yes. Well, was that last week? We were going to pick that up. Was that mm. last week? I was, yes. And I'm asking, I know whether you successfully bought it, but for well, our yes, listeners... I did, I did successfully bought, um, buy that car. Um, much better um, this time around. Drove it home. No dramas uh, whatsoever. Managed to get it advertised, and it's now up for sale on the clevercarcollection.com uh, with a lovely video of it. And while filming that video, I kind of went, oh, look at these clever touches. There's like even a glasses holder up here. And then I found poor Mr. Brown's glasses that he'd left oh, in there. So, yes, I felt devastated by that. So I sent them back. First class recording, and they were very pleased that they got them back. Okay, well, I'm, I'm very pleased you eventually got the yellow Fabia, and I hope you get used to seeing it in the car park, because it's never going to sell. Um, at this point, I'm going to introduce our guest, I think. So our guest this week is Jack Allman from Bumper. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, great to uh, great to be on. Nice Love to see you, you on. And just, just for those listening who haven't heard of Bumper, which I'm sure most people have by this point, just um, give us your elevator pitch. Give us a quick rundown of, of what you guys do. We like an elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah, we've we've done a few of them in our in our time. Particularly, that's, uh, that's a fun, you know, externally funded. So we've done multiple elevator pitches, um, and and some very very recently actually. So um, we were formerly, for those that have been in and around the industry or known us for some time, we we're formerly called Auto Service Finance. We rebranded in twenty twenty one to Bumper, um, something a little bit more memorable, something that stood out, um, and ultimately we're a payments platform. Um, solely focused in the automotive industry. We're best known for uh, our buy now, pay later products. And again, best known for that in after sales. So how do we help people spread the cost of their unexpected repair costs and ultimately therefore help dealers convert more of that work? Um, we have then subsequently introduced a couple of other payments, um, payment products to our platform. So we have, I suppose, another channel called Pay Now. And within that, we have credit and debit card payment links. Um, and then we have, uh, an open banking product that we call pay by bank and then our most recent product to kind of complete the kind of payments platform uh, of what we do we call paypad so that's the physical pdq machines the chip and pin machines which combine all of those payments products into one physical device which no other uh, kind of chip and pin machines do and it's you know we're working on full integration into into dms's obviously james i know you've been talking about uh, dms's last week so um yeah from our point of view ultimately we feel like we can help I suppose, digitalize and create some efficiencies around payments generally. Um, we work with uh, broadly kind of 5,000 uh, or so uh, repairers. Um, lion's share of that is here in, in, in the UK with, uh, with franchise dealers, but we're also live in, in Germany, Spain, uh, the Netherlands and the Republic of Ireland as well. Um, and from our point of view, I guess at our core, we are trying to solve that well, quite emotive problem for a lot of people, that distressed problem, but also that convenience problem of, what the, what the hell do I do when I've got a bill to pay that I wasn't expecting? 
Um, and look, I guess the elevator pitch, you know, I don't like to talk about competitors, but people are very familiar with Klarna these days or increasingly familiar with Klarna. A simple way to think of it is like Klarna for car repairs. Um, we do things a bit differently um, and we are an absolute specialist in, in automotive, but ultimately the, the problem that we're solving, this sounds a little bit grandiose and, I, and I'm not suggesting this is a global problem in the sense that the world is thinking about this in some sort of existential threat, but we do firmly believe that really wherever someone is driving a car and needing it to get repaired, the average driver doesn't know the cost of pads and, and, mm. and suspension and certainly labor rates. And therefore the problem of, oh no, I've got a bigger bill than I expected, I think exists in anywhere that's, that people are driving cars. I'm not saying we're about to solve that global problem, uh, nor is everybody thinking about it every, when they wake up every morning. But from our point of view, we think there is you know, we think there is a, a, a massive challenge that faces every single repairer and dealer that ultimately people don't have funds available <clears throat> to do about that. Um, and that's where we step in. I think yeah. this is something James has probably noticed from buying, um, is <laughs> trying to buy secondhand cars, is how flaky service history is. And some of that must be to do with people really do not have, you might have the funds to buy and lease your car, you know, buy and pay your monthly payment for your car. But when it comes to something needs four new tires, that's 300 quid. Do I have that right now? No, I don't. So I I can see it's a very useful thing to have. I mean, it'd be useful for me, let alone anyone else. Yeah, yeah. I was, you took the words right out of my mouth, John. I mean, every car that we've looked at on these auction platforms, it, I mean, it's very rare to see one with full service history. And mm. actually, some people list them as full service history, and that means that they think that's a service every three years or, or similar. And it it must be to do with the costs. I mean, I'm I'm interested to to know what 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 you think on, on that, Jack. I mean, have you have you seen that people are putting off getting repairs and servicing done because they just simply can't afford it? Yeah, like. Absolutely, and we 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 researched this initially when we were, you know, first setting up the business. Um, we we partnered with, um, well, Persian Citroen at the time, Stellantis, um, to do some research on this, um, and we've subsequently repeated that research, and and we found that around one in five drivers are are driving vehicles that are um, that are unsafe because they can't afford the repairs. They simply don't have the funds for those. Uh, necessary repairs and i think that's a key point just to kind of dwell on about necessary repairs you know the concept of buy now pay later also can get dragged into some negative connotations I, i'd argue it's kind of lazy journalism where it kind of gets pulled into an association with payday loans for example or going back to Klarna and previous criticism they've had where you've got perhaps people entering into you know multiple buy now pay later transactions for I don't know, 10 pairs of trainers to be extreme that they, that they perhaps don't need. But this is necessary repairs, right? These are, <clears throat> you know, these are professional people identifying repairs that are needed on a car. But for some reason, people drive away without having them done or, alter, or, or opting for, I don't know, a budget part or a cheaper alternative or, or getting only part of the repair done. Or as what's common that we see, and it's something that we are, you know, quite, um, quite vocal in trying to, to mitigate the, the, our industry gets drawn into discounting more so than so many other retail environments in the repair sector, particularly on the labour. Uh, there's not that many settings, retail settings, I'd say, you could go in and get such significant discounts quite so um, expectantly simply because it's a, something that a cost that someone didn't expect. I mean, if you think about a lot of these environments where it's you know professional environments, it's trained technicians, it's genuine parts, um, you know that is a, tr a transaction that is worth paying a premium for, 
but it's a difficult conversation to have for a lot of people. I think we can, we, I think we can help flip that into a far more positive conversation. You know, the good news is we've checked your car, duty of care completed. You know, the vast majority is in great condition. There's a couple of items that need attention. You can pay for that in one payment, or you could you could spread the cost of that. What what would you like to do? And we're not here suggesting you therefore have to talk about discounting. Um, you know, if, if somebody's presented with an unexpected cost, does giving them 10 or even 20% off really help? You're still having to pay 80 to 90% of a bill that you didn't have the funds, or at least you weren't expecting to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really kind of talking about it more on the kind of distressed end of the spectrum. There's also a convenience at play here, right? And, and I think repairers should think about that in the same way that we see a real positive output here in terms of the impact it can have on things like customer retention. You know, are you going to exceed that customer's expectation of their experience with you today? I think giving them the ability to spread the cost is, is a great way to do that. And therefore, does that help play into the idea that they're going to then come back time and time again? And we then start to think about the service history you guys mentioned. I think there's a massive play on that. Um, and, and, you know, we see this. I mean, our average age of vehicle that we're transacting with is seven years old. You know, so that's a, that's an old vehicle. And I'm, I'm talking here in franchise dealers as well, right? So it's a materially old vehicle, a lucrative vehicle, if we want to look at it like that, but one that's typically really hard to retain. Um, but I think what's interesting is that when we look at our retention stats, and I, I can only really see ours, we do work with retailers and OEMs on case studies, but I think about ours, what's really interesting is the second time spend of that customer at that same retailer through us is about 85% of the value of the first time spend. So they come back and they're spending big because as obviously this car gets older and the repairs get perhaps bigger and more significant, the help is needed, but it needs to be proactively communicated in what help you can provide to these, these drivers. And I think that's where we can really kind of play into kind of a, both a positive and a kind of a, a reactive um, scenario with the driver. Jack, tell me about how you got into this. I mean, where, where, where did the idea come from? Have you, have you got a motor trade background? Um, I, I do have a motor trade background. I will admit straight away, I've never worked in a dealer. Um, and uh, it's something we often kind of joke about. And obviously, James, you've kind of done this yourself. We, we always wonder, like, I wonder what it'd be like if we owned a dealership and we tried to run it. You know, it, it's far easier to... Don't do it. Don't like, do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's far easier to talk about it from the outside, you know, and as a supplier, the one that's not, not worked in it. But yes, I did grow up in the motor industry. Um on the, on the kind of tech side, I suppose. So my family, uh, my parents had a, a, a consultancy and software business called BTC. One of the products was AutoVHC, a health check platform, uh, which, which gives us a lot of the data originally that was the genesis for what happens today within, within Bumper. But they also had another platform on the sales side called uh, Inquiry Max, which they were, they were 50% owners of uh, as well. So there was kind of the, the lead management side, there was the after sales um, side as well and you know my parents had a business for for 30 years or so they've you know they've exited and they, they've they've retired now but as with a lot of motor trade people grew up around the kitchen table talking about the motor trade so that was my route in the, the actual initiation for for bumper came through my co-founder james who um alongside um uh, a lean analyst um at uh, within peugeot citroen who was looking at this kind of inefficiency within the service and repair transaction. Um, you know, he, he at the time was working within FinTech and they came to him and said, look, this is the kind of problem. And he said, well, look, what if we have a funding product for this? Um, and then he was then subsequently introduced to myself and my family's business um, through this mutual contact at Peugeot Citroen. 
and that really was what kind of where it started. He understood the, the kind of fintech, the lending side of things. We understood automotive and this kind of, as I say, if we focus and much of today's conversation may well be on, as I say, the, 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 uh, the, the after sales transaction within buy now, pay later. But we understood that. And then that's where they, that then came together. We did some early pilots. Um, I will shout out again, if, if, uh, you know, uh, credit one or two names early on who boldly stuck their hand up and said, yeah, I'll give this a, a try. When in reality, totally unproven, uh, total punt and a risk because we were yeah, a very, very risky startup. You know, and it's easy for me to say that now when we're, we're far more stable. But um, Gary Osborne um, at Thurlow Nunn um, was the first person to, you know, of a franchise dealer group to put the hand up and say, yeah, I'll give this a try. And, you know, credit a lot to Gary. I speak to him a lot still to this day. We're about to publish some amazing case study results with them, actually. They're one, our longest standing customer. And they've been brilliant. And that was really the, the, uh, the gateway, I suppose, into our franchise dealer customer base. Um, and then as ever, the kind of snowball effect, we worked with you know, a few Vauxhall dealerships that went up the tree to, to Vauxhall that then spread across a, a broader set of, of dealers. Um, you then go into multi-franchise dealer groups and do that same journey kind of up and down the, the, the ladder. Um, and it's kind of got us to where we are today, where, as I say, we, we work with 75, 80% of the, uh, of the uh, dealer groups in, in the UK. So by no means have we cracked it. There's loads more that we, that we want to do, mm. but you know, we, we feel like the concept of what we do um, and look, we've stood on the shoulders of the likes of Klarna, which have helped to kind of socialize, you know, fintech and, you know, buy now, pay later, you know, alongside us. So that was the, the initi initiation point. We're now a team of 80. Um, so still a relatively wow. small team, but we're, um, you know, we're kind of really doubling down on, on, on kind of what we think is, uh, is possible in automotive. You, you always remember those conversations don't you? and those those people that help you right at the start of the journey. I remember when I launched Cardinal Magazine, going out there and pitching the idea to a few people in the industry and a few of them are still in the industry now. And I will always remember those conversations when I first went there saying, this is what I want to do and this is my my idea. And when those people say, I like that, I'm going to back you. And it just, it sticks with you, doesn't it, for for, for the rest of your time. Well, congratulations on, on, a, on, a, on a fantastic, business and and giving us an insight on, into it it's been really interesting to hear and thank you for joining us for today's podcast but oh, i do you. think we should probably do some stories john regrettably yes regrettably <laughs> uh so james and i are going to run through our favorite stories of the week at the end jack gets to decide whose stories were the best and who is the winner i won again last week so i'm going to start but i'm going to start with one of james's stories because most what? of the james's stories um jaguar land rover has, oh. uh you see you see jaguar land rover has canned james baggett says its fixed price car sales plan i.e agency and has stuck decided to stick with the traditional franchised model so uh jlr were making some noise last year last june uh that agency was coming that they were going to transition to this their particular version of this model um which, as far as they're concerned, would would involve JLR themselves invoicing the client directly for each car, and then the dealer would get a nice handling fee uh, simply for handing them over. The other slightly questionable bit for me is that they wanted to take control of party exchanges, um, which, as we know, is quite a profitable part of the operation. So that would be a little bit painful, I'm sure. Um, but they've changed their minds. 
So I think, I don't know when this was due to come in. It was sort of probably the end of this year, was it, James? That end this of this year, yeah. Supposed to happen. Um, as of now, they've decided, no, not not going to happen at the end of this year. They haven't said they'll never do it, I think is the, is the point. But it's on ice, uh, is the quote that we've got in here. Um, I don't think, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't like to say with the JLR we're pleased or not that we have run this particular story, but we got well, a very, very interesting thought... statement from them, which I will read now. Okay, uh, go on. And then I'll we... give you the insight into whether they were happy or not. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a fantastic statement. I would assume co-authored with Grammarly. Um, a relentless pursuit of excellence has delivered opportunity for JLR to design its own unique retail model a client-centric retail experience that offers the underpinnings of the traditional franchise model with key adaptations to accommodate the changing demands of JLR's discerning clientele. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> They've definitely been experimenting with ChatGPT. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's got possible. It is possible. Uh, but yes, in, in effect, it's not happening. So Darren Edwards, CEO of Sitna, obviously big JLR um, franchise customer, he said the franchise model is a, a tried and tested model which can be intelligently flexed to suit the needs of all stakeholders involved in a new car transaction, i.e. clients, retailers, and manufacturers. JLR is to be applauded for adapting to the rapidly changing dynamics we have witnessed in the U new UK new car market. Um, I won't read all the quotes, but yes, it's, it's been well received, I think, hasn't it? It's just a little bit embarrassing for Jaguar Land Rover to do a U-turn, as U-turns generally are a bit embarrassing. Let, let me give you a little bit of background on this story. So uh, this came about uh, earlier in the week when I had a uh, text message saying, have you heard that JLR has uh, done a U-turn on agency? Uh, and I hadn't heard that, so I probed my contact further as is the customary when you're a journalist. And they gave me a bit more information. Um, so I prepared the story and I went to Jaguar Land Rover for comments. So I sent the uh, PR lady a WhatsApp saying, I've heard this, um, can I have a comment please? It went strangely silent uh, after that. Um, and I didn't hear anything um, for quite some time. And then at about half past 10 that evening, when I was soundly asleep in my bed, um, a press release arrived in my inbox, which was very, very well crafted by, as we know, can now see ChatGPT, um, with plenty of comments from Jaguar Land Rover. And also, interestingly, comments from not just Darren Edwards, but Robert Forrester. Um, and who was the other one? One other, um, one other retail partner. You have to find it for me, John. I can't find it at the moment. But that is really unusual for them to do that. Um, they've kind of, normally you would just get a statement sent back from JLR saying, this is what's happening. Yes, the story's true. Um, this is this is the reason. But I think the fact that I got this back with these prepared quotes from all of the, all of the retail partners says a lot. Um, I think they were kind of just trying to prove the fact that, yes, this was a U-turn, but they've done it because it's what their dealers what their dealers wanted which was quite an interesting way of, of, of positioning this i then had an email uh, not an email sorry a phone call from one of my contacts the next day saying you really put the cat amongst the pigeons with that story james um apparently uh, the jaguar land rover dealers were emailed by the um chairman of the jaguar land rover dealer committee saying the md is furious that this story got out uh, because apparently they were told they got 100 dealers together they were told this is what we're going to do we're going to go row back on 
on agency sales, but make sure you don't tell anybody about it. And obviously they went straight out of that meeting and sent me a text message. <laughs> Sorry, JLR. Uh, but that's how that one, that's how that story came about. And I just think that the fact that um, that press release was prepared with such detail with those comments from the dealers shows how worried they were about how, what the optics looked like on this one. Um, because yes, it was a U-turn, uh, but it, like you say, it's what everybody in the industry wants. I posted that story on LinkedIn and honestly, it went absolutely crazy. It had over 400 likes. Um, I think the last time I checked it, uh, 40,000 um, impressions on that post. Uh, and a huge number of comments from people saying, great news, this is what we wanted. Um, so I think it would be interesting to see what happens next with those other manufacturers who are planning agency because JLR making this U-turn so quickly follows Stellantis doing the same thing. And I hear the WhatsApp groups in Milton Keynes, as it was put, um, at, the Volkswagen, at the Volkswagen group were awash with our story uh, about what happens next there. Oh, I love that. The WhatsApp groups, Milton Keynes. Um, I think the other dealer was Gareth Williams, managing director of Hatfields. Am I Thank right? Thank you. Yeah, that's that was the other quoted dealer. Yeah, I, I didn't realise that they were in the press release, James. Those quotes, so that's that explains a lot. Because reading them, I thought these sound a little bit polished. For and so, that will be the reason why they were. They, that's what they were doing that afternoon after they received my text message saying, "Can I have a comment?" They were obviously ringing them all up, preparing those comments to make it look correct that it was the right decision to make. I don't know, Jack, what did you think about this? Did you see it? What, what's yeah, your thought yeah. agents? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's an interesting one, really, because I guess it depends where this all does settle. Like, does it does it kind of revert to what kind of or stay as we currently are? Does it move towards a kind of a hybrid between agency and the kind of traditional franchise setup? But I always wonder kind of the you know, you know, I, there will be obviously very clear reasons, perhaps, but why some of the manufacturers were very clear straight away they were you know we're not doing agency i think suzuki mm. came out yeah. and were like, absolutely yeah. not it's not for us and that was at a time when pretty much most manufacturers were saying yes we are going to move to that mm. i was thinking like, what did what did suzuki know or did they have restrictions like that meant oh. they didn't want to but there was something that they were super clear about and they were confident enough to kind of i suppose break the mold and come out and say no we're not doing this absolutely mm. no way dale wyatt came out and, and, and repeatedly said so Yep. Yet others forged ahead and others still are forging ahead. It's somewhat baffling. But I think what's interesting, obviously, you then talk about, I don't know, sort of like the new way of doing things. And obviously, you talk a lot about the Chinese brands coming in. And you've got BYD adopting um, uh, franchise setup through obviously the established you know, franchise dealers now. And I, you, know, you always think, oh, the Chinese are leading in I know, tech or the way they do things, but are very happy to adopt the franchise model. Um, that already exists so obviously MG got, was the same of course yeah you know they've grown from the traditional franchise model yeah yeah interesting it is, it is interesting to see how it's going to pan out isn't it this one I think and um, I think the fact that I had a lot of messages off the back of that story um, and one phone call with one car dealer group boss and he just went look agency doesn't work and yeah. as soon as the manufacturers realized that the, the, the better this industry is going to be because there are manufacturers that are pressing ahead with it. Mercedes, Volvo, um, I think Cooper do it with their, their models, but you know, they, they're struggling. Those, those, those brands, those brands and, and dealers are, are struggling with it. Um, and I, I can't see it being the future. And I think why my point has always been on this, the franchise model isn't broken. It works. 
Uh, if it needs some slight tweaks, then make those slight tweaks. It doesn't need a wholesale change like this. Yeah, I think also the... In I I'm not saying it's a distraction, but it's at a time when the industry doesn't need to be kind of like internally battling. Mm, right. I mean, particularly with EVs, um, and obviously everyone's aware of the, the challenges around not only selling EVs or the, the, the mass market adoption of EVs currently, but also like the impact on servicing revenues with EVs. So that's a, and the manufacturing, obviously. So kind of the, both the OEM and the retailer need to collaborate probably better than they ever have done. And it's not for me to say that they're not, but a very kind of public you know, fight between those two entities doesn't feel particularly helpful or productive at this point. No, absolutely right. We'll be right back. The Car Dealer Podcast is sponsored by SalesLink from Jato, a market insight tool that's purpose-built for franchise car dealers. Get analysis on thousands of new vehicle transactions every month from all the major brands. See model mix and trim data for the brands you sell, as well as competitor data, all in the free web-based platform. It lets you track vehicle option uptake, color preferences, and gives detailed data on pricing and discounts. Sign up for your free SalesLink account today. Visit jato.com saleslink to start unlocking your market insights. And a perfect segue to my story. Thank you so much. It's like we wrote these links in advance, which we didn't. Um, but my story, uh, first one, is about electric vehicles. Uh, and with an interview with the Fiat boss, Damien Daly, uh, at a launch of the 500? No, 600. 600E this week. Um, and he's basically come out and been a, a bit more firmer on his thoughts about the electric vehicle strategy in the UK. And he's saying that it's basically almost impossible, were his words, to get private buyers into electric cars. And this is the man who is speaking at the launch of an electric car. So, I mean, that is uh, slightly awkward, some would say. Um, but at least he's honest. Um, we covered this last week in last week's pod podcast because Fiat had come up with um, another call on the government and he's doubled down on that in this interview. Um, some of the quotes were, he, he's, he's given us were, what we've done is adapted our strategy because clearly the adoption of electrification in the UK, uh, and it's not specific to the UK, by the way, he says, is really, really slow. So he's asking for the government to come to the table um, to put something in place um, for electric vehicle buyers, some another another incentive, the plug-in car grant that we had before. Um, one of the things he said in this is, He's he's worried when it comes to that plug-in car, car grants removal. He says that the government, and I love this quote, got mm. off the train a bit too early. And we've all done that, haven't we? Like, Damn it, I'm in Clapham Junction, not London Waterloo. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was an absolutely fantastic quote from him. And it's, it's he's not the only one that's banging this drum, is he? Um, and I'm going to slightly combine this story. Oh, no, I was going to do that. But it's very, very similar. Uh, with a story that came out... Um, today from the SMMT, uh, with the SMMT really uh, urging the Chancellor, uh, who's got obviously going to be doing the budget next Wednesday, day before Cardinal Live, that'll be handy. Uh, he is, he's The SMMT are urging the Chancellor to be fair with the taxes for a fair transition, is what they say, to boost EV uptake. They would like to see a cut in VAT um, for electric vehicle purchases. Um, but what we're seeing quite clearly here is the industry calling on the government for some help. They've mandated these targets this year with the ZEV mandate. They haven't particularly helped, have they, with by 
changing the 2030 ban to 2035. The SMMT, as part of this, has carried out a survey of over 2,000 adults, um, and one in seven of them said they're never going to make the switch to electric vehicles. Um, and uh, and 24% of them, almost a quarter, said they're now delaying their plans to change to electric vehicles off the back of that ice ban being moved back from 2030 2035. We clearly need some help here, don't we? We need some help to boost this electric vehicle demand. I keep hearing from the dealers I'm chatting to saying it's really difficult to get retail buyers into them. And I can see why. I mean, the the messaging that's come out from the government is it, it, it's not clear. One hand, they're saying you need to go into electric vehicles. On the other hand, they're taking away all the grants and incentives. Mm. I don't know. What do you think, John? I mean, I I think we need a plug-in car grant back again. And I'd somewhat be surprised if we don't see some form of incentive for next week's budget for it. I feel like we talk about this every week, but well, <laughs> definitely did last week. But I, I think I'm, I'm pro plug-in car grant. I think it was removed in such a way. It was removed in a ridiculous pull the rug under from out under your feet kind of way wasn't it where it just suddenly disappeared almost um i think there's factions that get stroppy at the idea of subsidizing people driving around in 40 50 grand um evs mm. uh, and just handing money back to the general public but it's that's a very it's a very black and white well, not only black and white it's a very short-sighted way of looking at it isn't it because as we've said a bit like the scrappage scheme before the scrappage scheme the famous thing to say is that it generated more in VAT than it actually cost in the first place and so on and so forth. So actually, these things are quite a good uh, thing to incentivize people with. I do think if they're going to do it, they have to be consistent about it, though. We've got enough fluctuations in EV pricing as it is. Um, I would bet money um, that nothing will happen next really? week. Really? You yeah. really think that? There won't be any. I don't think there'll be a retail incentive for evs i think what they will do is maybe pump some more money into um or say they're going to pump some more money into infrastructure which i don't think is a bad thing as long as they're actually doing it i think what would be really beneficial as well is um well i mean we sort of talked about reduced planning uh issues for ev charging things because that's a big issue at the moment I think the bigger issue is actually getting electricity to these places, but I, I know the planning application process is also a nightmare to get anything mm. through. I think there's a lot of things can be um, it can be rejected on a lot of grounds if people say not in my backyard for a I don't know twenty EV chargers going up. There's a lot of stuff to sort through, um, and yeah. I I think a little bit like as we were saying different subjects, but in the, as we were saying in the intro to this, you know, ten percent off your um, your repair bill still means a repair bill. I think two grand off an EV still means an EV. If it's not suitable for you and you can't charge it anywhere, that's not an improvement. Mm. Yeah, I so think no, that's Jack, the infrastructure. What I was going to say, on the, look, it's not like I say, it's not a particularly new topic, and you know what I'm about to say is not new. But I, I live in in London. I live in in, in West London, densely populated uh, terrace street. No, nobody has a driveway. Um, mm. well, some do on the slightly wealthier side of uh, of where I live. Um, but the vast majority of it's park on the road. And to that very point, as I say, it's not new. And I know there are things being trialled around cutting um, channels into the pavement that you can run cables through. Obviously, off, you can do it off the lamppost in certain areas. But in reality, all of where I live in, in West London and Ealing rely mm. typically on public um, spots. There's, you know, I don't know, there's normally three. And then, yeah. I don't know, several streets away, there's three more, for example. 
and you know one very kind of personal um, experience that was very odd one of my kind of neighbors you know around the corner I came was walking home nearly tripped over the cable that he had plugged in now what really surprised me I recorded a video of it it really kind of tickled me thinking about EV adoption in urban areas that not only did I nearly trip over it on the pavement I then looked and actually his car was actually parked on the other side of the road so he'd plugged in his BMW was running that cable across the road under no. the parked on his side of the uh, outside his house across the pavement and into his window uh, it's it's ridiculous I, I I'm still umming and ahhing about posting it uh, on LinkedIn it, it baffled me oh, so much a car unbelievable. I know a car, a car could come by rip it out a, p- a pedestrian could trip over it point being is clearly this person had no other alternative let's say they have to drive their car tomorrow morning they, they need the, the the battery um charging and that's like one micro example right but that is gross that up that's probably a reason why so many people are not adopting it's the reason I wouldn't buy uh, an EV certainly in London where you don't have a guaranteed parking space outside your house and therefore a charging point you know that's a major major um challenge and, and then if I think about the you know the cost of it and obviously there were the grants that were available but as a reflection perhaps of the cost now you could argue those early adopters were a slightly more affluent customer base but even so we we actually do fund the home charger installation you know you're quite mm-hmm. easy to thousand pounds here right so yeah. Yeah. And, and you know we see that as a, as a growing part of our business because that's a big challenge for people you know, you can maybe get into the, the vehicle as ever with some finance available but the extras the add-ons the stuff outside the metal yeah that's again that's kind of cost prohibitive so yeah look definitely a major challenge i don't know really what the balance is like in this but there will be research on this like is range the biggest problem or is it charging infrastructure i think it's the latter really i don't think range yeah. is like a day-to-day problem for people maybe if you're you know, your summer holiday when you do drive to the lakes or Devon and Cornwall, that becomes a problem. But you plan your journey a bit more. But I therefore don't think it's range. I do think charging infrastructure, as you kind of touched upon, John, is without doubt lagging severely. The do sad thing is, think- well, London is usually the place that, in all these surveys, has the well, not even surveys. Statistically, it has the highest. I think there's more charging stations in London than yeah. there are in the rest of the UK. Yeah. <laughs> the whole Jack, UK, you- isn't it? Do you think the government will come to the table with, with an offer next next week of the budget? Do you think well, they're, yeah, we, they're, they're going to do something? Yeah, I was, we, I was actually at dinner with a few, um, kind of, uh, an industry dinner last night. And actually, there was a, there was a kind of a general consensus that yes, um, we think so. I mean, the problem is it goes against them pushing back the deadline from 2030 to 25, right? So these two things are kind of working inverse to each other, which is, somewhat bizarre you think if you were going to be doing that you'd 100 kind of stuck with your uh the, the grants that were available um but I, I think you know on balance if you want to change behavior typically it takes quite drastic action and incentivization um clearly needs to be needs to be there so i, I think there will be something um in there um particularly with the, the government's wider co- you know, global contribution to um to carbon emissions i think it's a statement of intent hmm. I'm going to put my neck on the line for next week's podcast, John, and say, yes, we will see some in the budget. Have you forgotten which government's in, James? Well, no. Well, <laughs> less politics. Okay. Move us on, John. Move okay. us on. <laughs> um, well, I'm just going to... I don't want this to be entirely EV-related, but we do have a lot of EV uh, stories this week, so I'm going to put two more in. One of which is... So Jim, <laughs> so Jim Ratcliffe... Oh, yeah. Um, ...has said that... Uh, consumers don't want EVs. He's made this comment at the launch of his new EV. 
another another car manufacturer <laughs> boss saying it at a launch of an electric vehicle. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I I do find this one extraordinary. So, um, I know these are all starting to sound a bit like the the famous one thing I have in my head is the uh, press conference of the Rover seventy five, where they unveiled this lovely new car, and then the boss of BMW or Rover, or whatever, got up and basically said, "Rover is failing. We need more money." Um, and then that sort of dampened the mood slightly, didn't it? Um, but that seems to be happening all over the place. So um, Jim Ratcliffe is a funny old one. Ineos, I think, uh, enormous petrochemical company, as we know, started making his own cars um, on a, I'm going to say a little bit of a whim. He brought out the Grenadier, didn't he? Of which we see a handful of. I think they're selling reasonably well. I think there's an enormous, there's a reasonable waiting list for them, isn't there? Mm. It's It's a bit of a, bit of a niche vehicle i would say but he um he was outspoken in the fact correct me if i'm wrong james that he wasn't going to have any evs it was going to be petrol and diesel and it was going to be hydrogen they were going to spend some money on investing in hydrogen tech bought in from somebody i i imagine um but sort of out of nowhere there's an electric four by four has come along so there's a, a miniature grenadier which he's called the fusilier again named after a pub and there's a photo here on our website of him standing under a pergola outside the Fusilier pub uh I assume somewhere in London um and it's an EV but also a range extender so you can uh you can have a full EV one with 250 mile range or a range extender with a petrol engine for 168 miles um but in this he has, uh, and at this particular launch, talking to the Telegraph, he's been quite brutal and has said, Europe is saying, you'll all drive electric vehicles and we, we can can the con combustion engine, whereas America is saying, there probably isn't one solution for all purposes. So he's keen on there being a multi-solution um, approach to this. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Jim Ratcliffe, I have to say, and I, I have, think you have to... Take James is waving his phone at me as though Jim Ratcliffe. Well, is... only because I'm sorry, my phone just rang that. But guess what? That was John. Go on. An inquiry on the Skoda Fabia. I don't know if it's going to be that or someone from JLR. I didn't know which way that was. <laughs> it was I'm going to call him inquiry. straight back after his podcast. I'm going to sell him the car. Okay, very good. But anyway, that's that's yes, one. So sorry, I wasn't. Oh. I wasn't listening to a word you said because that's I was excited. About you haven't missed much. Jim Ratcliffe's unveiled a new EV. He doesn't think anyone will buy EVs. So there is a question as to why he's launching it. Obviously, uh, because he is subject to cafe regulations in the same way that everyone else is. The second story I've got, because I don't want to dwell too much on him, is Luca De Maio of, or Mid De Maio, I don't know how you say his name, Renault Group CEO. Much happier story, I think. He's warning that European car makers can't, well, I say much happier. He's warning that European car makers can't flinch from the EV challenge posed by China and the US. Um, I mean, I assume he means Tesla, but I think Tesla are just as worried by China as anyone else. So this is at the launch of the new Renault 5 EV. I want to talk about the Renault 5 a little bit. Looks fantastic. Um, reasonable range for a small car and £25,000 we think it's going to cost, which is quite cheap, I think, for what is ostensibly a well-designed car from a European car manufacturer that's quite desirable, has a reasonable range, um, and is available, will be available in lots of dealers across the UK. We're not talking about uh, some random Chinese thing, are we? In fact, this undercuts a lot of Chinese cars, doesn't it? Of, of similar It's time. also got a really, really useful addition. Um, I don't know if you saw this on any of the press. Oh, 
Oh, but, I should have it, gone with this, honestly. You should, you should have done, but I'm going to steal it from you. And that is included in the Renault 5, in the passenger footwell, is a baguette holder. Yeah, which that's, is, uh, that's where James would sit. How dare you? Uh, if you want to transfer your bread back from the bakery, you can insert it into the baguette holder and it will perfectly hold it in place as if putting it on the seat was a problem. It um, is a problem, it, James. It, it is. It, it, no, it's not, John. Um, in, in the UK, you could probably use it for your brolly um, or other really long things, um, which I can't really think of at the moment. <laughs> uh, maybe tubes of polos, smarties, um, and anything else. That, that, is, Honestly, that is a life-changing that would be a life-changing addition for me because i don't like how when i come back from tesco my enormous baguette has nowhere to sit and it flails around and then it comes out with a paper bag because of the carpet i don't want that i want a nice <laughs> clean baguette <clears throat> wonderfully niche. yeah wonderfully niche i'm hoping yes. i can buy it from them and insert it into whichever car i'm uh, driving at the time but anyway going back to the moving on from the renault 5 and going back to uh what he said his his point, I don't think we've necessarily touched on this in the story, but he's he talks about it elsewhere, is that he's sort of looking for collaboration between European car manufacturers, isn't he? In a sort of like try and beat the Chinese by all clubbing together. Um, and not necessarily becoming some enormous unwieldy alliance, but at least for battery technology. No one's going to, uh, batteries are so far hidden underneath the car. It's not like um, you're going to get in your Renault and think, oh, I can tell this is the same as a Citroen. It's fundamentally... A, a, something that needs a lot of investment which they can't do on their own um, and it's better if we all work together John can I move this away from EVs because I'm frankly really bored of them um, oh. just, can we talk about something can we talk about something else yes fine thanks Thanks, John. Um, I'm going to pick my next story, which is news that supercar dealer Tom Hartley Jr. made a whopping £20 million worth of profit by selling just 77 cars. I had to say that really slowly. So it's sunk <laughs> because that is pretty mental, really, isn't it? I mean, that is absolutely fantastic uh, performance. So uh, Tom Hartley Jr., this is the period ending March the 31st last year. It's only for 11 months, too. Uh, it's not a 12-month financial year. He turned over £181 million pounds, uh, in that period um, and made an average profit per unit of £260,000. I mean, Amazing. Uh, so, if you haven't if you haven't heard of Tom Hartley Jr., obviously the son of Tom Hartley. Funnily enough, he's got his own dealership in Ashby de la Zouch, um, and he's currently building a new one in the Cotswolds. He sells some incredible stock. Currently, I had a little look on his website. He's currently got a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO for sale, and he owns all of the cars he sells. He doesn't do any on. Um, um, I can't even think of the word finance stocking loan. No, no, not stocking loan. You know, sale or return. That's oh, right, sale or return. I looked up the last 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO that sold at auction. It went for close to 41 million pounds. Uh, so he's got some beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, uh, other stuff that he's currently got in stock, he's got a 1959 Ferrari 250 GT long wheelbase California Spider Competizione, uh, longest name in the world, Ferrari F40, McLaren P1, Porsche 918 Spider. So he mixes the kind of classic 
real hyper classic cars with those modern supercars um but an amazing amazing performance he's rightly very very proud of it he he thanked his team um he said he's got it was a very good year (laughs) no kidding uh and i'm very proud of my small but extremely capable team he said our turnover was in fact well over 200 million pounds of sales was also concluded on cars that we didn't have in stock but received commission from uh we put far more effort and investment into our research preparation and presentation than our competitors, but the cars don't sell themselves, he said. But just just as a um, as a barometer, that £20 million profit for one year would put him well up our car dealer top 100. Um, if you look at the car dealer top 100, um, that would put him well into the top, top 20, I think it is, um, by far and away the most profitable independent um, independent car dealer. And we obviously do our um, list on EBITDA profit, and this is profit before tax, so it's probably slightly different. I haven't done the calculation, uh, but £20 million would have easily put him into the top 30 um, alongside, uh, above, sorry, some franchise dealers like Johnson Cars, Porsche Retail Group, WH Bowker, um, even um, big motoring world, all of those would be below him in the list. And this is 77 cars he sold. Let's just <laughs> rewind back to that. 77 cars. An amazing performance. Um, and yeah, rightly, very, very proud indeed. Jack, did you see that story? Yeah, I, I were you really blown was. away as I was? I know. We actually, again, we were talking about it um, uh, this morning in, in the office. I, again, you know, none of us have sold cars before, but like as a you know, as a, as a moron from the outside, it makes me wonder, you know, again, how frustrating that must be for the, you know, the, all those groups you just listed, any kind of volume retailer, the effort that has to go into selling X number of cars to get anywhere near that number, you know, so frustrating. But clearly, obviously, you know, it's, again, as he stated, it's not easy, but I'm sure he does the fundamentals brilliantly. He buys really, really well, clearly. Um, but in terms of selling it, I mean, he must just have the black book of all black books uh, in terms of contacts, right? I mean, there must be a, a, a queue of people that he can call when you know certain cars come to come into his uh, his business. But yeah, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal. Really you know, I don't know what what else do you sell seventy seven times, and you make that sort of profit um, at the end of it. I mean, remarkable, absolutely yeah. remarkable, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's not just in the automotive world where that is an amazing yeah. performance. It's in in most retail worlds, isn't it? I mean, it's just, I, I'm sure, like you say, actually, there can't be many other businesses where you can sell 77 things and make that amount of profit. I, I'm sure it's probably impossible elsewhere. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm thinking like yachts, houses. I, yeah. I don't know what else you, you know, that, that kind of, but you'd be, again, you're obviously in the, you'd be in the kind of super category of any of, any of those retail sectors, but yeah absolutely phenomenal i guess you know i assume he has a, he has a global presence you know yes in order yeah. to achieve that he, you know, he must have a worldwide um, reputation a worldwide contact list but yeah phenomenal phenomenal yeah. output um, he's um he's agreed to do one of our selling supercars videos and john we're going to see him in a couple of weeks time i'm going to be doing a proper proper interview for our youtube channel so i'm looking forward to getting up there and actually having a good look around that what looks like an amazing showroom from the pictures Anyway, John, back to you. Back to me. Much less squeeze at the end. We've got a lot of news this week. Um, okay, I'm just going to squeeze in a Cap HPI update. Ooh. Used car prices have gone up in February, which, of course, I imagine has something to do with um, those excellent profits that you were just talking about. 
Um, and Skoda Fabius. <laughs> yes. Lots of, uh, yeah. I don't think they list things like the 250 GTOs on this. Um, so it's gone up. Three-year-old cars have gone up by 0.7% in February. Um, as we've, as James Baggett says here, as dealers are rushed to stock up their forecourts once again. James doesn't seem to be in quite the same level of rush, uh, but there we are. Um, so I'm going to go through the, just talk about some of the biggest fallers. Mercedes-Benz E-Class petrol hybrids down 10.7%. Uh, it's basically full of hybrids and electrics. This Vivaro Life Vauxhall, which is an electric van, um, down 9.7%. Uh, Jeep Compass Hybrid is down. Mitsubishi Mirage is down. Oh, dear. Oh, no. sure there's a lot of those in stock across the nation. Fiat 500 Electric, bad news for Damien Daly, 5.9% down, and so on. Biggest risers... Alfa Romeo Giulietta Diesel, 9.1% up, oddly. Weird. That is weird. Very strange. Um, I won't go through every single one, but what did you think of this price rise, James? Well, I think it it was a bit of a shock, wasn't it, really? Um, which is why this story's been sort of positioned this way. Yeah, February often does have a rise, but I think the shock here was the actual the percentage that it did rise by. I think with mm. January saw 0.1% fall, which was pretty much level. I think we were sort of expecting it just to be in the low uh, percentage ticking up 0.1, 0.2. So 0.7 is very positive, but we've certainly seen it, haven't we? Looking at, we went to that auction totally, yeah. last week. We've seen the prices um, being, well, going well over cap and actually incredibly firm. And the good stuff really is in, in high demand, so I wasn't I wasn't particularly particularly surprised uh, when when Darren told us the news. But it would be interesting, really, see what happens in March. Um, he, he said normally those big volumes of part exchanges don't come through until the end of the month, um, and possibly we could see another another month of rises. Yeah, but ultimately very encouraging, right? I mean, you think about the kind of health of the health of the market, um, and again, go back to the what I said before about. The industry needing positive news. I think, um, from a, the public's point of view, um, prices going up won't be something that pleases them. But for the health of the industry, those um, you know the strength of that used car market is is very encouraging. Obviously, the heady days coming out of COVID were were, were remarkable. But it's um, yeah, I'm sure very very welcome uh, across the board. Yeah. yeah, definitely. John, can I just wedge one final little uh, story in stroke plug? Yes, um, I mean, which which is for our forthcoming Car Dealer Live event next week, uh, which takes place on March the 7th at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. We've published a lot of stories about this this week, um, but I just want to run through some of those research papers that our partners are going to be talking about. Auto Trader, our headline partner, are going to be talking about the used car forces of change. So every one of these these partners are also bringing along dealers and some of them actually car manufacturer, um, some car manufacturer personnel to talk about this research on the live stage too. Auto Trader have got the Wink Cars um, team from uh, the used the used car business. They were um, used car award highly commended um, at the last event, and they're going to be talking about auto traders forces of change which they which they say are these fluctuating used car prices they're going to look into used electric vehicles and explain people's thoughts on online car sales 
one I'm really looking forward to is Google. Um, they're at the end of the day, they're talking about how their new vehicle ads product works. I mean, this is something that's been long awaited in the industry. It's about where you get those cars are actually going to be at the top of your Google search, like when you're searching for a shirt or trainers, et cetera. It's about that appear actually in the search on Google. So Mohammed Lone is going to explain how that works uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the day. Cox Automotive have got an amazing, uh, really detailed four-year forecast um, into the used car market. Um, I've seen it, um, obviously, ahead of it. It is absolutely fascinating. It's got some amazing headlines on it, which I'm not going to ruin. Um, but there's some really interesting things in there about what's going to happen to the ice market, um, petrol and diesel over the next uh, next few years, and how electric is going to play into in, into the used car market. Um, and joining Phil Nottard on stage will be Dale Wyatt, Suzuki GB director, and Danny Minshaw, who's the regional director of Cardi the Group Greenhouse. So we're going to get some instant reaction from a manufacturer and a dealer there. Automotive Transformation Group have got an interesting session all about car dealers' concerns for the next year and how to tackle them. Uh, they're also going to be looking at AI, uh, omni-channel. Uh, and then Ivendi are going to be talking about what car buyers really want from online car sales. They've, they've conducted a piece of research of a 1,000 used car buyers, and they're going to be talking about exactly what consumers want when it comes to buying a car online and what they don't want to be doing uh, and joining james chu their ceo on stage will be scott sibley of redgate lodge he was on our podcast recently wasn't he he's was fantastic uh, and he's going to be given his 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 uh feedback straight away on on that um on that session but yeah we've got loads of stuff going on that day I'm going to be conducting two headline interviews, one with Peter Vardy, who's got a lot going on, and one with Peter Waddell, who's also got a lot going on. So two big personalities. First one will be Peter Vardy in the morning, then Peter Waddell headlines the afternoon session. Very, very much looking forward to conducting those inter uh, those interviews, plus the ones with our car dealer panels. We've got franchise, independent, and a luxury car dealer panel, uh, and car manufacturers, BYD, NEO, and Stellantis are going to be on my car manufacturer panel. So a big day um, packed full of interesting stuff from the motor trade. Um, and if people want tickets, cardinalli.co.uk. Plug over. While they're still available. <laughs> yeah, while still available. Been incredibly popular this year, isn't it? We managed to convince the venue to give us some uh, more seating allocation last week, which we've managed to release this week. Um, and they we keep are having saying... to reconvince them to give us a bit more, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Then they're getting a bit some... tired of us. Yeah. Good problem to have. Oh dear. Well, that's it. That's me out of stories. Fantastic. I will also say I'm out of stories. Um, Jack, are there any stories you think we've missed this week? Um, I mean, that was, yeah, very comprehensive. There are two things that we uh, we kind of been discussing uh, over the last few days um, in, in the company um, that kind of piqued our interest. One of which is more specific to us than necessarily automotive, which is the news around Klarna's potential uh, IPO which um, is, is kind of suspected to be later this year um, uh, and the valuation around that. Um, coupled with that, actually, is some very interesting AI results. Again, I won't kind of delve into that in detail, but they, they look to be utilising AI materially and actually getting meaningful results as a, 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 you know, and, and a lot of learnings to be taken from that. But again, given the, the, the platform, the audience, <clears throat> the other story that I think was very interesting um, not quite sure when it broke, but it was around the, the the news that the state is going to investigate Chinese brands for security concerns. 
Yes. Um, so, you know, I think the Biden administration has, has kind of said they'll take action or, or at least begin to take action in terms of investigation. And I was actually chatting to Jim Saker about this last night. And he's done quite a lot around this space and particularly around security um, and, and, and how connected cars and, and, and electric vehicles are, in theory, a, a very, very real security threat. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, chatting to Jim, he's incredibly knowledge, knowledgeable in yeah. this but it was news that that he welcomed massively. I think he's actually been to, you know, he's spoken about this directly in, in the States before. So, yeah, fascinating uh, take on, you know, the, the Chinese brands and, and what they could mean, not just for the impact on, on car sales, but actually as a, as a potential, you know, national security threat. Mm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Interesting to see whether that kind of happens over here too, but we will wait and see. We won't mention it until we've spoken to BYD and Neo uh, after cardio life so <laughs> yes quite right don't, don't want wise. to put don't want to put them off <laughs> yeah probably very wise very wise very good um so i'm gonna to have to ask you which were your favorite stories this week and therefore who is the winner yeah i mean so i mean the, the big topic definitely is obviously jlr um but Ooh. but oh i saw you celebrate earlier there, John. Oh. Um, however for me in terms of like most interesting and i just think on again on a very personal level what what was discussed most in the office was, was without doubt the uh in fact i don't know if you brought this one up as well john the tom harley jr uh, no that was definitely me oh, was was def uh, i'm definitely yes i'm so desperate for a win yeah, yeah, that i have to stake a claim to that story early on yeah absolutely so jlr breaking news but um there's a, there's a pattern or behavior there but the the yeah tom harley jr financial results were outstanding so yeah james you are you are the winner Oh, thank you so much. I've broken the <laughs> un, un, undefeated John of the last five weeks, I think it was, wasn't it, John? Do you know what? I'm all right with that because that is a very good story and I forgot to include it. So very unusual for you. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jack, for the win. I, I very much appreciate it. Well deserved. Very, very well. Now, I'm now going to celebrate by trying to sell a Skoda Fabia yellow one to a man, a man from Wiltshire. Um, interesting okay interesting, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> uh, well all that's left for me to say is thank you to jack for judging today it's been lovely to have you on and to uh chat about bumper um and understand its origins as well which is very interesting and, very you, and no problem at all and thank you as well to james uh for managing to come back to the podcast after receiving a once in a week phone call uh, on his car sales bat phone <laughs> great well, it's funny because it's true yeah yeah great uh, service. we'll be back next week with another episode uh, with catherine fairs i believe from water trader um so make sure you're subscribed so you can be notified when that goes live if you want to check out the stories mentioned today take a look in the show notes below or head to cardiomagazine.co.uk. Thanks for listening and goodbye.